If I were to ask you to share with me the gospel from Scripture, where would you take me? Yeah, John, there you go. John, it's a quick response. Some would take me to John, the gospels, talk about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some might take me through the, the Roman road, start at Romans 3.10 and 3.23 and talk about how we have, we've all sinned and 6.23 and explain how the payment for that sin is, is death. And then maybe Romans 10.9 that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Others might take me to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 10 where we're told that while we were dead in our sins, God sent his son Christ to accomplish our salvation. You might take me, yeah, to the Gospels to explain Jesus' personal work. What, what if I were to ask you to uh, uh, show me where the Gospel is seen in the Old Testament? Where would you take me? Maybe you'd take me to Genesis Right? Talk about creation and the fall and the hope of Christ in Genesis 3.15. You might also uh, take me to the major and minor prophets and talk about all the messianic prophecy found there and also in the book of Psalms. But let me ask you this. How many of you would take me to the book of Ruth? Well, let's look at Ruth. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth. For those of y'all that don't know where Ruth is, don't, don't worry, I'll tell you. You got the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, that little book that comes right after the book of Judges. For the next six weeks, we're going to be studying the wonderful story in Ruth, and I pray that as we draw principles out, you find uh, clear biblical principles to apply to your life. But, but, but even more than that, I, I pray that through this study, you see that the book of Ruth is a gospel-saturated book. This book just oozes gospel. Now, before we jump in to Ruth chapter 1, let me take a few minutes once again to give you a bit of background on the book. You know, I always like to do this. We'll start with the author who wrote Ruth. Well, we, we don't know. We don't know who wrote Ruth. It is uh, believed to have been written after the time of David's rise to power, but beyond that, we don't know. Some say Samuel, but uh, we'll, we'll find out in glory, right? That'll be one of the questions that we'll, we'll have. The audience of the Israelites living after the time of the, the time of the kings, the period of the kings, after David's rise to power. Date, again, we're not for sure, but we know because of the listing of David's ancestors in the book that it's after the time when he became king. The type of book, well, there's different ways people group uh, together the books of the Old Testament. I group them in this way. You have the law, history, poetry, and prophecy. And in prophecy, of course, you have the major and minor divisions, the major and minor prophets. Ruth falls in the history section of Scripture, so it's a, it's a history book. The purpose of the book 
Biblical scholars are torn over the purpose of the book because there are a lot of lessons to be learned in Ruth. And at times, the Spirit of God who, who inspired the words of Ruth, he's silent on certain things being right or wrong so we have to we have to draw out conclusions based upon the context one thing that is clear in the book of Ruth is that there is a huge emphasis on the providence of God the fact that God is at work behind the scenes in and through people and in and through circumstances both good and bad for his purposes and for his glory another thing that is obvious in this book is this idea of redemption that word is used again and again in this book so which is why we have given it the the title of this series the the title that we have given it okay a few unique elements in the book one is this book is unique because it's named after a woman there's only one other book in scripture that has its name from a woman you know what that book is Esther right and we've talked about Esther you can get online listen to our series through Esther Ruth is is also unique in that she is the central character in this story and she is non-Jewish that's unique she is a a Moabite we'll talk more about the Moabites as we move through this series but that's very unique and Ruth was also uh, unique in that she's she has some similarities to Abram think about this she came out of a foreign land called out from a pagan people right she becomes a child of God and like Abram she plays a pivotal role in God's gospel story both her and Abram are in the line of the Messiah. We learn that from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. A couple of key words to keep in mind. First word is hesed, which means kindness. The kindness of God and the kindness of Boaz are seen, and the kindness of God through Boaz are seen throughout this story. Also the word goel which means redeemer. The word redeemed is used as a, as a noun and as a verb over 40 times in four chapters. So what do you think the book of Ruth is about? It's about redemption, right? It's about redemption. Okay, well let's get into it. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1. I want to begin by asking you a simple question. How do you respond when times get tough? Some people get mad. They get mad at their circumstances, mad at others, mad at life. If they grew up in the church, they may get mad at God, believing Him to be sovereign and, and bringing these trials into their lives. Some get mad. Others withdraw. They turn away from friends and family. They withdraw from God. Some take matters into their own hands. I'm guilty of that. They try to change their circumstances when tough times come. How are we to respond when times get tough? Well, we're going to learn that lesson this morning in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to study the difficulties that this family 
had to endure, how they responded, and we're going to make application. And, and most importantly, we're going to study about God's work in this difficult storm and what we learn from God's gospel from Ruth chapter 1 today. The first response I want us to see is Elimelech's response, okay? Elimelech's response, and I want you to notice that Elimelech took matters into his own hands when times got tough. Let's look at it. Beginning in verse 1, Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, now let's stop there for just a minute, we learn a lot right here about the setting of the story. When did this story take place? In the day when the judges ruled, right? You want to know more about the period of judges? Study the, the book of Judges right before this one. When you do, you find that the period of the judges was one of the darkest in Israel's history. It was a dark and difficult time. There, there's a great summary of what was going on with God's people in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, that says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Listen to Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? In Judges, there is this seemingly endless cycle of sin, captivity, repentance, rescue. Sin, captivity, repentance, rescue. This period of time lasted a little less than 200 years from the death of Joshua to the time of the kings. It was a dark time, which is why this book, Ruth, is such a great book. We learn a lot about God and the way he works in the dark times through the book of Ruth. This book shines bright during this period of darkness. In the midst of one of the, the darkest periods in Israel's history, we see God at work in and through his faithful. Let's keep reading. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Stop there. We learn a little more about the setting of the story here. Notice that not only does this take time, take place during the time of the judges, but notice where this story takes place. There are two places mentioned in this story. The first is Bethlehem. Let's focus on Bethlehem for just a minute. Y'all probably know about that, right? The little town of Bethlehem. Yeah, you know the tune? The word Bethlehem means house of bread. And notice what's taking place in the house of bread. Famine. There are many ironies taking place in this story. This is one of these. There is famine in the house of bread. This is like me saying, at Pizza Hut, there's a shortage of what? Pizzas. Pretty strange, right? In the house of bread, there is famine. So we're told of a man from Bethlehem who takes matters into his own hands and uproots his family. He moves his wife and his two sons to this second location, Moab. We, we'll talk more about Moab and Elimelech in just a moment. Let's first focus in on this 
famine. Why is there famine? Is this God's judgment? Well, the Spirit of God is silent on this here, but I do believe that he gives us several clues. One, this story takes place during the time of the judges. And if you study the period of the judges, you know that God's people were in trouble an awful lot, right? Another clue here is that when this famine comes to an end in Ruth, we are going to hear these words. The Lord visited his people, and he is the one who gave them food. So if he brings harvest back to the land, it seems to indicate that he might have removed his blessing at an earlier time. Another hint comes when we study the context. When famine hit Bethlehem, where did this family move? They moved to Moab. Do you know how far Moab was away from Bethlehem? 50 miles, which is a pretty good trek on foot, but, but not that large, right? That would be like us saying there is drought and famine in Jacksonville while there is rain and crops aplenty in Longview. Just to give you a little perspective. This famine seems to be directed toward this people in particular in Bethlehem and probably the Jewish people as well. So the author focuses in on the actions of this particular family. He says, they leave Bethlehem and Judah. They went to Moab, settled there. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons, his two sons, were Malon and Kilion. Their names mean sick and dying. That's what their names mean, okay? And uh, that's going to be important here in just a moment. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So here we are told briefly about a man by the name of Elimelech. We are told that he left the land of God's people and he traveled to a pagan land because of the famine. Times get tough and instead of hitting his knees, Elimelech hits the road. Instead of responding in faithfulness to God, in the land of his people, he forsakes God and his people, takes his family, he uproots them from Bethlehem and moves to the pagan land of Moab. He chose food for family over fellowship with God. And if it is true that famine has come as a result of sin, Elimelech has chosen not to face those consequences. He skips town thinking the rains of his life are in his hands. So he moves his family to Moab. Moab was no place for God's people. Just read your Old Testament. The Moabites had a terrible beginning. They were spawned from incest. Lot and one of his daughters have an inappropriate relationship and from that comes Moab and from Moab comes the Moabites. They were a godless people, polytheistic. The main god we learned from scripture they worship was Chemosh. Okay? So Elimelech is really following in the footsteps of many during this period of the judges, doing what's right in his own eyes, moving his family away from fellowship with God and his people into a foreign and pagan land. To make sure their stomachs are full, Elimelech sacrifices everything spiritually for his family's physical well-being. Here's the ironic thing. You ready for this? Remember, there's lots of irony in this story. 
Elimelech's name means my God is king. Boy, he's certainly not acting like it, is he? Here's another ironic thing. Though he makes these sacrifices, removing his family from the land of God and his people, though he makes this move so that they might live, notice what happens to Elimelech and his sons, sick and dying, in the next few verses. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, a big no-no, but they were left with uh, a little selection. Their father had moved them to Moab. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion, surprise, surprise, died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, so get this, famine hits the house of bread, and God is king, Elimelech, chooses to turn away from God, leaving his family and his people behind, opening up his, his family to the wicked influences of the Moabites in hopes that they might have at least a little food to eat and live. And while in Moab, Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, die. He moves so that they might live, and they end up dying. Foolish move by Elimelech. Now, Spoiler alert, God is going to do a great work in Moab bringing Ruth into this family. But that doesn't mean that what Elimelech did was wise. That means God is sovereign and there's a difference. God can work through your foolishness to bring about great blessing. That doesn't mean that that, that foolish act you did was good, right? That just means God works in that way and he's great. Elimelech is an example of one who responds to difficulty by taking matters into his own hands. When difficulty comes, he lets one pro outweigh a hundred cons and he and his family pay the price. Many of us fall into this trap as well. When difficulties come, our first response is not to hit our knees in faith and say, Father, we look to you for rescue. Show us your plan in this pain. We don't repent if it, that's what's needed. It's not the first response to hit our knees. Instead, we hit the road. We make decisions based upon monetary reasons, physical comforts. We fail to consider how those decisions could affect us and our family spiritually. That's Elimelech's response. We, we count the financial cost and the physical cost and give no thought whatsoever to the spiritual cost. Foolish. That's foolish. It's foolish to make any decision concerning quality of life, get this, without first consulting the author of life. Follow me? Folks, life and death is not in our hands. Our life physically and spiritually is in God's hands. Elimelech failed to see this, and at times we can too. Notice the second response. When times get tough, we learn it from Orpah. While some take matters into their own hands, others reject God. That's what Orpah did. Look at verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So, word has traveled to Naomi 
that harvest has returned to the house of bread. There's bread in the house of bread again. The Lord has visited his people. He has given them food. Again, while Elimelech took matters into his own hands, tries to care for his family, when, when famine hits, he dies, but God is the one who brings relief. Do you see that? God is showing us once again, he is the one to be looked to and trusted for every provision. We should never place our trust ultimately in ourselves, but in him. Look at verse 7. Lengthy passage here. Track with me. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, We will not return with you to... No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So follow me here. I know that was a lot. Naomi has received word that there is food once again in Bethlehem, and her plan is to return. She's going to return home widowed, childless, and, and poor. While she refers to her daughters-in-law as her daughters, it seems as if they have a great relationship. When they try to follow her, she reasons with them and says, why would you go with me? I, I have nothing for you. My sons are dead. I have no children. No grandchildren. You see, in, in this day, if a, if a family had lost a son who was, who was married, the wife could marry the, the other brother in the family, and he would be like a savior to that woman, providing care for her, giving her children. Read uh, Deuteronomy 25, I believe, 5 through 10. talks about that. Naomi is saying, you won't have that option with me. I have no other sons. She, she even gets a little sarcastic. She says, even if I were to marry on this night and have sons, are you going to wait until they're of the marrying age? Now, I want you to notice here in Naomi's response that she has been greatly influenced by her husband, Elimelech. She is solely thinking about their physical well-being Truth is, she has something wonderful to offer these ladies, does she not? Something more wonderful than a husband to marry and children. She has the one true living God of her people, Israel, to offer these women. She gives little thought to that. 
While she does bless them and say, may the Lord Yahweh deal kindly with you and grant that you may find rest, she does not call for the women to forsake their false gods and follow after her and follow after the one true and living God. Thankfully, Ruth will make that decision on her own. We'll talk about that in a minute, but unfortunately, Orpah does not. We have a sad, sad statement made about Orpah in verse 14 and verse 15. We're told she kissed her mother-in-law and returned home to her people and her gods. The last statement about Orpah in verse 15 is short but significant. It indicates to us that a move away from Naomi, a move away from Bethlehem, and a return home to Moab is a move away from the one true and living God. Unfortunately, some respond in that way. When tough times come, they turn away from God, never to return. They reject Him. They turn to idols. They go at life on their own. They carve out their own way apart from and opposed to God. Listen to what J. Vernon McGee said about Orpah. Very sad statement. He says, Orpah went back to idolatry, and when she goes back, she walks off the pages of Scripture into silence and into oblivion. Sad, sad. I've witnessed that, have you? It's sad. Don't let that be your response. While many commentators paint Naomi in nothing but a positive light, which, you know, we kind of cracked that egg when we, uh, when we talked about Esther as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again here. I think she makes several mistakes at the very beginning of the story. One being her dealings with Orpah and Ruth. Uh, we're going to learn that also that she was bitter toward God. And while she's being honest, she's wrong in her assessment of things. And she lets her circumstances uh, influence her. And she thinks life is better in Moab for these women. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Ruth explained that Naomi lacked the spiritual insight to see that sending these women home while giving them options on who to marry and a possibility for children was sending these women back to their heathen idols. Naomi's interest at first are fleshly and the results for Orpah were devastating. But notice Ruth had higher desires than marriage and children. Notice Ruth's Response: She placed her faith in God. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death, Parts me from you. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So, so Ruth's response is meant to be viewed in contrast to Orpah because that's exactly what it is. She responds the exact opposite of her. She gives an incredible response. Sadly, Orpah's response is normally the ordinary response, but, but Ruth's response is extraordinary. This is the first time Ruth speaks in this book, and what she says is amazing. She shows great faith here. Again, it's ironic that the first 
great demonstration of faith in this story is not by the Jewish people, but by a Moabite woman. These words are legendary. Let me put them in my own words. She basically says, don't, don't push me away. I'm with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, so will I. Where your dead body lies, so will mine. Ruth shows great faith here to follow Naomi. She was sacrificing everything that women in her day in Moab valued. She was leaving her world behind, family behind, marriage behind, children behind, at least so she thought, right? Spoiler alert again. And, and notice, not only does she sacrifice family and friends and homeland and marriage and children, she puts her life on the line. She, she says, may the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's significant when it's all caps. That's the sacred name of God. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So notice here, Ruth refers to the one true and living God here. She doesn't say, may Chemosh do so to me, does she? She says, Yahweh. She says, Yahweh, the sacred name of God. She's acknowledging Naomi's God as her own now, which is the opposite of Orpah. Orpah returned to false gods. Ruth turned to the one true and living God. This is her conversion here. She says, may Yahweh bring judgment down on my head. If anything but death keeps me from this vow that I've made to you. That's amazing. So when, when tough times come, Elimelech, takes matters into his own hands. Orpah rejects God. Ruth responds in faith. Now let's end with Naomi's response. We learn from Ruth 1 that Naomi's response was she was bitter toward God. She was bitter toward God. Look at verse 19. So the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Similar to what she said in verse 13 when she told Orpah and Ruth, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So, so we, we learn here that, that Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem and when they got there, there was a lot of chatter among the women. They're, they're, they're talking. Is this the Naomi? Is this the Naomi that, that lost all the men in her family? I mean, this was like front page of the Bethlehem Times that, that Naomi has come back. She's, she's back and when Naomi hears her name, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. So when difficulty hit, Naomi went from pleasant to bitter. She says, I'm, I'm upset. I, I'm bitter so much so that my name is no longer Miss Mary Sunshine. It's Gloomy Gus, right? She's upset. 
The hand of the Lord has gone, gone out against me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. My life is in the pits. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. He has caused me nothing but pain, nothing but loss. I have nothing. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. Listen, while I don't believe Naomi's assessment of the way in which God is working is correct, at least she's being honest, right? She is doing that. Naomi is completely honest with how she's feeling. While she's wrong in her assessment, she is being brutally honest in her confession. I can relate to her confession, can't you? You know, oftentimes we, we hear stories about Stephen who in Acts 7 when he's being stoned, he shows great faith and he prays for his persecutors as he's exiting this life. He prays for their forgiveness. We, we look at Stephen and we marvel at that response, but get this. I believe we can look at Naomi and relate. Can't we? We often respond in this way. When the storms of this life come rolling in on us, we often respond in this way. We get angry. We become bitter. We ask why. We fail to understand. We question God's hand in it all. God wants us to be honest with Him. He does. Just read the Psalms. Read the laments. Very honest. He wants us to be honest with how we're, we're feeling. He knows the truth of it anyway, so don't try to hide it. Might as well be honest, right? But he also wants you and me to view suffering correctly. And at times he corrects us in that, right? He's going to correct Naomi throughout the story. She's going to see that, that God's not dealing bitterly with her. He's dealing very graciously with her. It's amazing the work that God's going to do in her life. But listen, God's intent and allowing storms to come into our lives is not for the purpose of crushing his children that's not the purpose but to grow them in godliness i've said it before but you probably heard me say it i've said it a few times uh, the quote it's not mine but that that life's adversities are god's universities so very true i heard this said recently this is a quote god doesn't waste suffering. Not one minute of heartache or one minute of headache, one minute of headache is wasted by God. It is intended for the purpose of making us godly. It is for our good, ultimately for our joy, believe it or not, and for His glory. Naomi is going to discover this. While their family went their own way, chose food in their stomachs over fellowship with God, paid dearly for that decision. Naomi does respond in the proper way by returning to the land, and Ruth does as well. Notice they, they forsake Moab, and they return to God. They return to him. They return to his land of blessing at the beginning of barley harvest. Barley is the first of the grains to be harvested. Wheat was the last. So, so this is the earliest of the harvest celebrations. They got a lot to celebrate after famine, right? Season of harvest was a time of celebration. It's a time of remembering God's favor and his blessing. And we're going to see his favor and his blessing in this story. There's a little foreshadowing going on there. It's a time of new beginnings. 
Ruth and Naomi were soon going to experience this. They had forsaken the godless land of Moab and had returned to the Lord in his land of favor. They had left the land of the dying and had entered back into the land of the living. While Naomi was broken by her circumstance, she was soon to be restored by God, her Savior. The Lord's favor and blessing is getting ready to visit the home of Naomi and Ruth. We're going to see that God is working in Naomi's storm. While she's sulking, God is working through her pain, through providence. He is going to use her difficult circumstances and her daughter Ruth to prosper this family. God is going to, spoiler alert, provide a redeemer for this family in Bethlehem, a man by the name of Boaz. More on him to come. But I want you to see something here as we close. We too are in a similar state today. We live in a fallen world like Moab, don't we? We live in the midst of a fallen people like those who live there. And, and, and some of you have experienced great pain and loss like Naomi. But listen, though that's the case, God has sent us a redeemer as well. Sent him to Bethlehem, did he not? It's where God the Son was born, the Father sent his son from heaven to earth to take on flesh in order to live and die and rise for us so that he could rescue us from this fallen world and from our sinful state while we like Elimelech turned away from the God who, who made us and created us to live in relationship with him we forfeited joy we dishonored him by setting ourselves against him in turn God set himself against us but instead of completely washing his hands of us God chose to rescue us by sending us his son he sent him to live the life we could never live to lay down his life as our perfect substitute and sacrifice so that we, through faith alone, in Christ alone, could be forgiven of sin so that we could be restored to our right relationship with the living God and so that we might have life in his name. Are you trusting in God's Redeemer, Jesus Christ, alone for your salvation today? If not, would you make him Lord of your life this very day would you forsake your sin and bow the knee to him would you like Naomi and Ruth forsake your old life forsake your sin and turn to him and trust in him alone for salvation I pray you would today let's pray together